0: guys to know that on instagram and twitter at i am mr Don hodge the podcast is over on instagram as well at the hodgepodge podcast if you guys are listening here and you're liking it then go ahead if you listen on apple podcast and give me a five-star review and then write a little review please that would help me um, rise into the podcast game i would be really angry if you don't no, it doesn't matter. If you don't if you don't think it's worth it, then that's fine. You don't have to do it, but I wish you would. If you're listening on like Spotify, iHeartRadio, stuff like that, there should be a little plus add button. Just click that, and it'll give your feedback, and please give me a five-star review there. Now that that's out of the way, hope you guys are doing great today. Not a lot going on over here. Uh, we've been uh, constantly pouring out different... Different podcasts, different interviews, different simulcasts. And so, we got one coming your way this Wednesday. We recorded it a month or so back when we recorded Simulcast 10. So, it's going to be live in person. Picture um, Shrimp Radio Season 2 premiere has dropped. It dropped this past Friday, whenever you're listening to this. It dropped on November 6th. Um, so, go listen to this Part 1, Deb Riley. Um, pretty good episode. Part 2 is coming... Um, this coming friday uh whenever you're listening to this so it's already out but without further ado let's go over right now to the introduction to today's guest and we're going to get this podcast started yo yo this is x Chase Money and you are listening to the Hodge Podge podcast all right on the podcast today we've got Kent Blazy Kent Blazy is a Nashville singer and songwriter. His new album *Authentic* is available right now. It came out September 22nd, so go get that. He has written a bunch of songs, a lot for one of his best friends, Garth Brooks. And he's written uh, "Ain't Going to the Sun Goes Up," "The Storm," "It's Midnight," "Cinderella," "Cowboys and Angels," "She's Gonna Make It for a Minute There," "Beer Runs," "Hunky tonk Somewhere," "Baby Let's Lay Down and Dance," "Sugar Cane," "If Tomorrow Never Comes," and a lot more for Garth Brooks. Just, just. That's just not even a fingerprint for. He's also wrote for other artists that included "That's What I Get for Loving You" from Diamond Rio, "Can't Get Enough" from Patty Loveless, and "Getting You Home" from Chris Young. We're talking about him finding Garth Brooks at a young age, and 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 and, and, and it was asked to write for Garth Brooks in the late '80s, and that's when they came up with if tomorrow never comes and then like they say the rest is history so we're talking about him continuing the friendship with garth brooks and how he continues and how garth brooks is as a person and how he writes he's also um, chatting up about his love for electric guitars and we have a good conversation right at the end about just guitars and how they fascinate him so much and i try to ask intimate questions that I know the audience would like to know about guitars and and uh, we talk about getting you home from Chris Young writing that song and we talk about really just songwriting in general and how songwriting has changed in the past 40 years that he's been writing songs and so it's a great chat today so go get authentic right now from my buddy, my guest today, Mr. Kent Blazy, the newest member to the 2020 Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. This was just an—he told me he had a, um, um, um. Well, this was a big secret, I guess he was holding, or until it was announced. I don't know, um, but it just got announced probably last week, and so that's kind of cool. So give it up for the newest member into the songwriters. Hall of Fame, Mr. Kent Blazey. Okay. Yeah, let's do the phone thing. Okay, cool. Yeah, I have I no
1: look, I look better on the phone anyway.
0: Okay, sure. Okay, cool, man. I no, I, I would help you out do that Skype thing, but I have no clue what you're looking at <laughs> to even answer that, so <laughs> um but yeah, man, uh, Kent, I appreciate you being on here for me. Um, I, I really do, um, because I'm nobody here on this podcast, and you're um, you're, you're somewhat of a, of a big known guy around Nashville, so I, I appreciate it. Well, I
1: appreciate you saying that. I don't know if I perceive
0: that, but I'll go with that. <laughs> so I'm going to do a little introduction here real quick, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and start with this podcast. Um, so on right now is Nashville songwriter and artist kent blazy um he has had seven number one songs uh including getting you home the black dress song from chris young and if tomorrow never comes somewhere other than the night ain't going down to the sun comes up it's midnight cinderella and she's gonna make it all from one of the probably the greatest country artists of all time uh garth brooks so man i was looking at, it took me like three hours to write down all the songs that you that, that you have written in your lifetime. And I wonder, and we'll go back in time, I wonder what song do you look at right now as, I'm glad I wrote that song, because if I didn't, I wouldn't have gotten my message through. Do you have a particular song that you think that?
1: Well, I'll, you know, it would truly have to be If Tomorrow Never Comes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that was the song that I probably asked the universe since I write, started writing songs, that I would write a song that would touch people's lives and make them be grateful for what they have and, um, you know, just uh, make a communication of a relationship that much closer because of what the song was saying. And that's what I feel like we did on If Tomorrow Never Comes. And, you know, we had thought when we wrote that song that we'd written a really good song and we pitched it around town for probably a year or so and we pitched garth around town for a year and they said well he's never going to make it with a name like garth Mm. and uh finally he got to play that song one night at the bluebird and somebody from Capitol records who passed on him for the second time that week uh heard something and told him to come back in and he got a record deal because of that song and so that changed his life, my life, and I hope it's changed a lot of other people's lives who've heard the song, because we've heard so many amazing comments about how it's touched people, and, and that's what you always pray you would write.
0: Mm. Yeah, man, and to me, If Tomorrow Never Comes, it's easily my top three favorite um, Garth songs. Uh, just just period, just because of the message that comes through, and and and. I learned of that song and of Garth because when I when I was growing up, I, I was born in '98, so I'm going to use the early 2000s as, as an example here. When I was growing up in the early 2000s, that is kind of around the time that Garth Brooks kind of parted ways with the music with his music career. So for me, correct for me, I didn't really know Garth Brooks as current Garth Brooks. You know, I, I knew of Garth Brooks from my parents. You know, they went to a concert and they said he rose from the piano. It was the greatest. Uh, concert they'd ever been to and I knew it from past experiences and now he's my favorite country artist um of all time and and it's just it's amazing how you can have a career like Garth and when I use I'm going to say not kind of he didn't get tired of doing what he you know the music thing he didn't get tired of you know you hear people a lot you know I had this big stardom here, it just kind of happened so quickly and I was just kind of, you know, bummed out the whole time. So I'm just gonna stop what I'm doing here and just take a break because I'm I'm wore out from it, you know. Obviously it wore him out you know, physically and probably but I'm I'm talking mentally, you know. It's just one of those that he just keeps coming right. back and keeps making hits. Well, you know, he just
1: he's one of these people that's really grateful for hmm. all that has happened. And i very grateful for all the fans that have supported him through everything he's been through. And, you know, I don't see that a whole lot with performers, you know. Mm-hmm. And he, he's never really comped an attitude like uh, some of them tend to do. And he's just <laughs> kind of the same guy that he was when I met him. And the cool thing is, you know, we're still friends. We still write, uh, still talk to each other 30 years later. And that's very unusual in Nashville.
0: Right, I wonder. You know, I I will get to um, how you came upon Garth and how you wrote um, "If Tomorrow Never Comes" here in a few minutes. But I wonder when you get you two together. You know, because you've written a lot of brilliant songs and great songs, and you get Garth for you know. Let's let's compare and contrast. You know, how different is he from the first time you wrote a song together to most recently? Like, and how have you grown as well?
1: Well, you know, the thing that I see about him is um, he was a great songwriter before I ever met him. Okay. And um, he came in with that idea for If Tomorrow Never Comes, and um, I just kind of helped him shape that song. And um, he's still such a great writer. He's, He's, I don't know, out of all the people that I've ever met or wrote with, he's always like three steps ahead of where anybody else is. And it's pretty phenomenal to work with somebody like that. You know, he usually knows what he wants to say, and he's going to say it in a different kind of way. And he just brings an energy to a writing session because of that. You know, he could probably have written every song on every album by himself. He's that great of a writer. But he loves co-writing with people, and he loves recording other people's songs. And that's another thing that uh, kind of changed in the music business, it seems.
0: What was it like for you when you got the word that Garth, If Tomorrow Never Comes, was going to be a number one song? And right now it's possibly one of his biggest songs um, of his career. So what is that? how has that shaped you as a person from the time you realized, oh, we really do got a hit on our hands to, 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 to the way the song is shaped with people's lives now?
1: Well... You know, i call it a, a little or a big miracle in the way that whole song happened, uh, the way it was written, the way it was found by mm-hmm. Capitol Records, and then uh, also that they were willing to take a chance on a new artist with a slow song, which is very unusual. And, um, you know, we just, we just knew we had written a great song, but to see other people begin to see what it was was just... Um, such a joyful occasion for us and then to have something that you loved and a song that you had always prayed to write become number one, that's just to me an answer to a prayer and just to see how that song has taken on a life of its own and reached people like you, your age that's, you know, people come up to me all the time when I'm doing shows and they've got these stories and they could be Ten years old, or they could be eighty years old, but they all have a story about how that song impacted them, and that's a songwriter's dream, right there, to have that happen. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, I'm curious about you know you when you open up your own home recording studio, it kind of offered you like an option, or I should say, for your demos, and you you know you're shipping demos out to. These different places. So what was the start up of having a home studio? Was it always a dream to make music and you'd be your own boss? I guess you could kind of word it. Yeah, it
1: was truly both of those two things. And, you know, before I moved to town, I was already kind of doing that. I had a little demo studio, but it was just for me. And so when I came to Nashville, other people heard what I was doing and asked me if I would do uh, little demos for them, you know, other songwriters or whatever. So it expanded from a little two-track to a little four-track. Then it ended up being a 32-track studio and Mm -hmm. doing a lot of demos for other people, but also I had that capability to do a demo for myself anytime I wanted to. And because of that, um, and because most songwriters don't sing very good Um, we were always looking for demo singers to sing songs and at the time my stable of singers were like Faith Hill and Martina McBride and Joe Dippy and Billy Dean Trisha Yearwood and none of those people could get record deals so they were singing demos and it's just so um, gratifying to see all these people who had sung for me go on to be big stars because it was like you knew they were amazing, and you could never figure out why the music business didn't see how great they were. But then, over time, they all got acknowledged for how amazing they are.
0: Yeah, and so quickly for people that don't know what a demo singer is, so I'm going to use this. Kent would write a song, and then he would then hire someone to come in and sing that song. That way, they can pitch that song to other artists. That that's that's kind of yeah, correct, what, right?
1: Yeah, and what you want to do is have the best possible singer put the best possible light on your song. And so if you're a regular songwriter who doesn't really sing all that good, you find somebody really good like Joe Diffie or Garth Brooks or Trisha Yearwood to take your song and make it really sound great. And um, that's kind of how it worked in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm.
0: So you grew up in Lexington, Kentucky, um which then you were musically inspired by Roger McGuinn uh right w- take paint paint me a kentucky here and and paint me a picture of what it was like growing up in lexington and then you know f- finally trading I'm I'm reading something off your uh website here and it says you traded your baseball glove for a guitar so that makes me think that you wanted to be a baseball player
1: yeah my dad um had been kind of a minor league baseball player and a, a PE teacher and all that. So, you know, from the time I was probably two years old, he had mm-hmm. me hitting the baseball and throwing a baseball and all that. And he was always real encouraging for that. He kind of managed some of the baseball teams that I was on and all that. And, um, so that was kind of my dream to be a, a baseball player. And, um, then electric guitar got in the way, you know, and, uh, the cool thing about that was my dad, who was the coach of the team or I guess assistant coach of the team I was playing on at the time I turned in my uniform, he was he was cool looking. You know, I think he was right. disappointed but he never really gave me any any platform. He just kinda said, Well, do what you wanna do and and uh, go where you need to go and so that was you know, that's very unusual for parents when, when the kid totally changed his course from what he was doing. But, uh, you know, that was the blessing of my dad. He was always so, uh, inspiring to me about go do what you love and, uh, you know, don't do like I did. So, uh, that always helps a musician when you have a, a parent that supports what you do. Cause I had some people where like we had one drummer in a band where we'd have to speak his drums out, uh, go play in a gig because
0: his parents didn't want him to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder because you took up you, you you know, you wanted to really focus on songwriting and I wonder because for me I've always wanted to do something in music, but I can't play a lick of any instrument. I don't have any um singing abilities, but I love the aspect in the background of how music is made. So like I've always wanted to look at like I'll look at a um an Aerosmith record and I'll be like Wow, who is, you know, such and such? I wanna know about this guy because he made this music that I'm listening to very enjoyable. And that's kind of the reason I'm doing this, but what was it about songwriting that just kind of took your eye versus, you know, being an artist and singing your own music? In a little town
1: called Woodstock, New York. Before it was Woodstock New York for the pop festival. But growing up there, it was always a tiny little town, but was an artistic town. There were artists there, there were authors, there were actors. And so I would meet these people and say somebody had, uh, you go to their house and they'd say, I've just written a book, do you want me to autograph it to you? Mm -hmm. Or you go to somebody's house and they'd be working on this huge painting in their living room. And I thought, as, as a little kid, well, that's really a cool way to make a living. Right. So I was. I always kind of gravitated towards the arts and my sister was kind of the same way because our parents had no artistic really ability, but they were very encouraging. So my sister became a really great artist and photographer mm-hmm. and I instead went into the music side of it. And um, it just was one of those things where that taught me from the beginning that there were other ways of making a living. So from the time... I was, I'm a, maybe in high school, I was writing poetry and stuff like that and got some of it in uh, school magazines and stuff like that. So that's a little bit of encouragement. So when I got an, a, a guitar, the first thing I did was, well, I, I write words. Let's see if I can put some music to the words. So that's kind of right from the beginning when I got a guitar, I started writing songs. Mm-hmm. And I can't say they were any good, but, you know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, but that's, that's like everyone that starts to write a song, you know, like when you're at a young age, you know, because I, I used to write songs as well when I was younger, and I have started back now, but I think it's kind of more poetry than it is songs, um, but kind of like, you know, when you start out, when you're like writing a song at eight years old, first you start talking about a car, and then for some reason you go into a dog, and then the whole song is just a bunch, a bunch of hodgepodge such of sorts, and then when you get older, you realize, oh, I have to keep, you know, you have to keep the story there, and you have to keep people entertained. So, what have you gotten from the entertainment aspect of, you know, nobody, no uh, uh, because if I was to see you out, uh, Kent, and, and I was like, oh, that's just a normal guy on the street, but you're obviously behind the scenes writing all these songs and these giant songs for some people, and what is it like when you tell somebody, oh yeah, I've wrote this song and this song and this song, to see their reaction on their face? Because because obviously, probably a lot of people think artists write their own songs.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what you run into most of the time. Uh, they just feel like artists are the ones who wrote the songs and sang them. And that's, you know, a lot of it's the case, and it's more the case now than it was maybe in the 80s or the 90s. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes they don't believe you, they just have to Google it <laughs> and, uh, and see if, if you're lying or whatever. But... The one thing that I love to do is do shows where people want to hear the stories behind the songs. And right. then they're really amazed, because to me, every song that gets recorded and every song that becomes a hit has some magic to it to have something happen. And so I've got some great stories on every song that I've written mm-hmm. that has been recorded, you know? And people love hearing that, just it's behind the scenes thing that you never hear any other place. Right. So, that's mainly when I go out and tour that's what I'm
0: doing is I have, have the shows telling the stories behind the songs so I'm curious here when you when you had your home studio you know you'd, you'd have names like Randy Travis or Trisha Yearwood or Joe Diffie or Martina McBride come in and sing your demos for you who were some of those or just a, one or two of them that just absolutely blew you away and you're like I can't believe these people don't have any doesn't, doesn't have a recording right now or a recording contract
1: well the one that, well, Randy was one of them that blew me away from the beginning, but, you know, the thing of it was, Randy was so country at the time, country music was in that country place at the time, and he kind of brought country music back to country music. Okay. And, um, I mean, he kind of sounded like George Jones right from the beginning, but then the other couple ones that come to mind was Trish Sherwood You know, I met her when she was... Uh, going to Belmont College in Nashville. And back then, she really sounded a lot like Winona Judd, but she was just an amazing, natural singer. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, Garth was like that, too. And then the other one that I really remember was when Garth got popular, I needed to find another singer to take his place, and so I found Joe Diffie. And I remember the first time I had him in the studio with me, and I had my headphones on, and he started singing, and I was like, oh my God, what a voice. Because I really didn't know what he sounded like, somebody who just recommended him, and so I, I had called him up, and just to hear his voice coming through those headphones is something that I'll always remember.
0: Yeah, and, and it's interesting to me because... Back in the day, you know, back in the early '90s or so, you had like Randy Travis and and Joe Diffie, and they had remarkable sounds. Like you knew who they were once they come through the through, through the radio speakers. You know, yeah, that Randy Travis, he has that I'm gonna love you that, that type that type of sound in his voice, and you knew, okay, that's Randy Travis. Otherwise, now you're kind of like, well, who is this new guy that's coming on the radio? You know, and I wonder. How do you transition from writing from the '80s and '90s and probably the '70s to now this new age of different sounding type of country? How do you how do you how did you kind of transfer from from doing the traditional sounding country to the now what they're categorizing as bro country?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, and I'm glad you brought it up
0: mm-hmm.
1: instead of me. But um, <laughs> I really miss being able to to know who these voices are on the radio because a lot of them just all sound alike to me. Yeah, And, um, you know, they all kind of got that Georgia Southern thing going on and they're all kind of singing the same kind of um, songs about, you know, getting in the truck and going to the bonfire and all that kind of stuff. And mm. so, you know, I just really miss those voices that when they came on, like Trisha or, Joe Diffie, or like you said, Randy Travis, you knew who they were, and um, it just brought a depth to me to the music that um, is kind of missing these days. Personality. I guess that would be the word. And uh, I would love to hear some singers come back where they really bring that personality to the songs they're singing. Mm -hmm.
0: We'll get back to your uh, personal life here in a few, in in a, in a, in a, Few minutes, but I want to go over some of your songs that you've written and try to get a little uh, pat down on how those came about. Um, so the one that comes to my mind first, uh, obviously, uh, if tomorrow never comes, but would have to be "Ain't Going Down" till the sun comes up. And I wonder when you were writing, you wrote that with uh, Garth and, and and Kim Williams, um, which Kim Kim Williams has been part of a lot of the writing process I, I've, I've researched and saw. Um, so when you're writing "Ain't Going Down" till the sun comes up, that's kind of like a fast worded song. And so I wonder whose idea was it to to make it that fast. Like since o'clock' clock on Friday Eden Mama doesn't know she's leaving, you know, that that type of thing. Was it just kind of like Hey a, you're
1: pretty good at that <laughs>
0: Appreciate that man. I I'm told you I've listened to Garth my whole life, man.
1: <laughs> well you know, um, Garth he's he's an amazing guy. He kinda like nobody I've seen before, he kinda sees the future and aims for the future. Okay. And so he called me up and he said, I want to write a song with machine gun lyrics. And he wanted me to call Kim Williams. So we got together and he said, okay, guys, I want to write a song with machine gun lyrics. that tells a story. And then the other thing that inspires you, he says, if we get this right, it'll be the first single off my new record. So, of course, you know, you're working as hard as you can. So what I remember was we went out and we sat on the back porch and we wrote machine gun lyrics all day and just laughed and had fun. Cause it was always such a great time with Kim and Garth together. And, um, and at the end of the day, we had this song with machine gun lyrics and, um, Garth wanted to go into my little studio and do a little demo of it so he could play it for his producer because he really hoped that it would be the first single off the record. So we went into the studio and, um, he wanted a drum machine on it. And so I started a little drum machine and while I was going, Kim and Garth were standing behind me and I heard one of them go, Oh my God. <laughs> and I turned around and there were termites coming out of the floor and the mm-hmm. ceiling. And I think the drum machine pissed them off or whatever, but Garth, uh, Sang and i played guitar and we had a little drum machine going and right from writing the song to going in and demo it he sang it where you could almost think it's the record the demo that he did on it was really? phenomenal just just the thr- me and him and a drum machine but um he took it down to his producer and they ended up cutting it the next week so it was probably the fastest song that i've ever had from being written to being recorded to being a hit
0: so I wonder is when you're writing machine gun lyrics, is it now that you've done it once, is is it harder to after you write that to go into a studio, you know, the next couple of days and, and like, okay, we're gonna write a slow ballad hit you in the heart type of song. Is it is it kind of hard to do that or can you kind of balance the two? Well, you kind of balance the two and
1: you just kinda of gotta take that where the artist wants to go. That's the the big thing, but You know, I grew up listening to so much different kinds of music that I love all kinds. I love ballads, I love uh, machine gun lyrics, um, whatever it's going to take. So, yeah, it's like every day when you go in to write, you just never know what's going to show up or, Mm. you know, what kind of song you're going to write, what kind of tempo you're going to have. So you just kind of go with the flow with it. You know, you don't go, well, I wrote that, so I don't know if I can write this other thing today or whatever. You just kind of go,
0: okay, what's going to show up today? And that's the magic of it. Right. And just a couple more here uh, from from Garth uh, that will move on to other artists and then back to your life, if if you're cool with that, Kent. Um, Yeah. Beer Run, which is B-E-E-R-R-U-N, was that written as a duet? Because obviously Garth recorded it with George Jones, so was that considered... um, Were you sitting down like, okay, it would be cool if we had somebody on here doing this part, or was it just written strictly as a a single-person song?
1: No, you know, I think, once again, it was Garth seeing what he could create Mm. in the future. And so when we were writing that, I think he was really kind of aiming for one of those old George Jones kind of songs like The Race Is On or something like that, you know. And so when we got it done, he said, man, I'm going to see if I can get George Jones on this song. And, of course, Tim and I were like, well, that's amazing. Let's go with that. And uh, sure enough, he ended up getting George to do it. And, you know, it was one of those things where you always wish you had a George Jones cut. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you've got one, thanks to Garth.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, you wrote wrote a couple of Garth Brooks songs that went number one. And one of them that I think is, is lost on the people is it's Midnight Cinderella from the Fresh Horses album? I think that was such just a, right. such an in-your-face type of Garth Brooks song. That why do you think that that's not one of his most notable songs? Like even though it went number one, you know, why in your mind do you think you know that was kind of a, a myth? Like, well, not not really, and I don't mean it in a rude way, but kind of like a miss compared to the other songs, you know? Well, I think
1: what it was for that song, it was just a fun song. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it didn't have any depth to it, like a lot of Garth things, that it didn't really stand out as far as machine gun lyrics or whatever. But um, the other thing that was interesting about that song, when we wrote it, we were just kind of writing it for his kids who were little at the time, and uh, just kind of a fun song, almost like a ha-ha-ha song. Mm -hmm. And he never thought it would be a single. He just wanted it to be on the record, but then radio and a lot of other people kept asking for it to be a single. So it finally came out as a single, and it went number one, which surprised everybody because, you know, we just thought, well, it's a little album cut, and all of a sudden you have a number one song on it. But then the other thing, he's got so many great number one songs that he doesn't play it in concert very much at all. So I think it's that kind of thing where people who heard it back then it's kind of out of their memory, but if he was playing it in these live concerts, they'd be going, "Oh yeah, I remember that." Or the next generation would be would be going, "Oh, I don't remember that, but I like that." So, right. it just is one of those things. Of it doesn't, it's not in his um, show that much or in his mind that much. So, consequently, he's just known for so many other things.
0: As I was looking at some of the songs that you had written, and I realized that. It's that that it's Midnight Cinderella had went number one. I was like, Wow, because I know most of his albums front to back, you know, just the, I can know I'm like at the back of my hand just because I grew up on him, like I said. But I don't I was like, Are you serious? Midnight Cinderella was a single and it actually went number one because I do remember it being, you know, like on the Fresh Horses album and it'd be kind of like an album cut. And I was like, Wow, okay, right. that's interesting to me. I don't remember it being anywhere you know what I mean? Near the the popularity of his other ones, so that's so that's what really took me by um, by surprise was, was was this Midnight Cinderella.
1: Well, I think what happened on that is, like I was saying, all of a sudden this jockey started playing it, and um, people started requesting it, and so it came on the charts like in the fifties or the sixties, even though it wasn't supposed to be a single. Mm. And so it just kept kind of going up the charts, and so finally, Capitol Records and I guess Guard said, "Well, we might as well turn it into a single and see what happens." And that was just kind of the public and the DJs saying, "We like this song. Can you do something with it?"
0: That's interesting that it happened that way because a lot of songs that you know that you hear of and that you don't know of and you do the background of they kind of make their way known to the audience through that way. Like back in the day, like I remember when Kiss, they were, um, the DJ accidentally played Beth, which was a B-side, accidentally played that over the radio instead of the current single. And Beth became bigger than the current single, so they had to drop the current single and go with Beth. And Beth is like one of their, in my my opinion, one of their best songs they've ever done. And it's just because of that one mistake, but one person's mistake could be another person's blessing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's one of the things I miss about um, having singles like that. Um, there were so many times where a single got turned over and became a big hit uh, that nobody would have ever know, but the disc jockey either played it by mistake or liked that song better and wanted people to hear it. And uh, it's just really cool to see how something like that happens. And that can't happen in the format that we're in these days.
0: mm mm-hmm. And I wonder here, and if I get too personal, man, just, just cut me off, but I wonder, just as a curious person, a fan of music, obviously, if Tomorrow Never Comes would probably be the biggest Garth song you've written uh, with Garth. What did, kind of, how did the payment work out? That Obviously, if you wrote it with different people, you know, you're getting, you're, you're sharing it three ways, two ways, four ways, however many people wrote it, but were you able to buy a house with that type of money? <laughs>
1: Well, you know, it's can't really a house with this kind of money, but you can put a down payment on it. Okay. And back then, you know, music uh, actually paid way more than it does now. And, um, you know, I don't know if you can even have a down payment on a house anymore with a, a number one record. You know, it's kind of mm-hmm. gotten so crazy. But back in the 90s, what was so great, and Garth was a big... Um, Person that changed this was you could just have a a song on an album and it would go platinum, and you know if there were three writers on it, you were going to make like maybe between sixteen and twenty thousand dollars just for having a song on a record. So if you had three songs on a record, like Kim and I did on a couple Clay Walker records, you know that's a pretty good chunk of change in a year just for writing album cuts. But now that we don't have CDs. You can't get album cuts, and now it's where most people, even if you put out a record, kids, especially, just order what was the hit, and they don't really care about the rest of the record. So it's mm. a totally different world than it was back, you know, 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, I was going to hit on that a little uh, a little later, but but we're here now. So, uh, you know, be, with with Garth selling, you know, tens and millions and hundreds of millions of albums. Just having a cut on an album, you know, could probably pretty much set you for life. You know what I mean? To, to certain people, because certain people have different living uh, capabilities. But it's just, it's amazing now that, you know, you can sell uh, like Diamond, it, it'll go Diamond Edition, which is selling so many hundreds of millions of albums or 10 million. But it, the point I'm trying to make is now you're lucky if you sell 100,000 albums or even 1,000 albums. <laughs> Right,
1: exactly. And, And, you know, it's one of those things where um, you can have a number one single like uh, they did on that song all about the bass, which was Nashville Writers, and it got, like, I don't know, 12, what was it, 420 million spins on Spotify, and the songwriters made $4,000. Where back in the 90s, if you had, like I said, a song on a record, you know, you could make probably between, depending on how much publishing you have, but if it was two writers, you could maybe make twenty-five or $30,000 just off an album cut. So that's the big change of things. And because of that, we're losing so many songwriters who can't make a living anymore. That, uh, you know, some of them were big songwriters back then, and some of them are trying to make a living now. But it's just a, a totally different world than what it was 20 years ago.
0: Hmm. I want to get your take on this because I often think about this sometimes and it's like, we're going to use Billy Dean, for example, because I think he was known back in the 90s, but you bring him up today and nobody knows really who he is if you're talking to, you know, my type of generation unless you're a big music nerd like myself. Why do you think, and this is all personally, you don't, you know, I'm not speaking business wise, but why do you think people like Billy Dean or somebody named, you know, like a, Johnny two good shoes, whatever you want to call him, they, they're big in the 90s and then once they've had three right. or four hits, you know you don't hear of them anymore. Why do you think that is? Do you think because a lot of people I was talking to somebody about this the other day and they said, well, they just don't know how to turn with the tides or they don't know how to to, 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 to kind of two step with the music you know and try to change their outlook on it. Do you, what do you think personally why that happens?
1: Well, you know, I would say that every story, every person has a different story on what that was to them. Um, you know, Billy and I—he uh, was—he was my main demo singer for a long time, and we played in the band together. And we actually are still friends. And he helped me do a live hospice benefit last year, and I'm going to help him do one in Florida this year. Mm-hmm. But I think with Billy, um, and this may be totally off base, but my take on it was, you know, once you become a recording artist, your life isn't your life anymore. Mm -hmm. And some people sign on for that and know that that's the case. Like, when I was working with Clay Walker one day, he was showing me his calendar, and he said, I know where I have to be every day for the next three years. Mm -hmm. And that that blew my mind. And so, Billy to me, he was kind of one of these guys, he came from Florida, and, you know, he kind of had the Jimmy Butler mentality, and as great a singer or whatever he was, I think he just thought, I'm just kind of giving my whole life away, I don't know if it's worth it or not to to be doing it like that, and I think that kind of was what it was for him, and I think everybody's got it different, you know, sometimes you're on a record label and they're really behind you, and then... People come in and they put a new president in charge and that president doesn't like what you do so that you don't get played. And there's so many variables on what can happen to an artist who is really hot and then all of a sudden they're not. And some of it is maybe they don't want to change with the times, but usually there's something else that's changing in the music business, with their record label or their management or whatever, where they just don't, you know, this isn't, this isn't what I thought I was going to be.
0: Right. And you, you bring something else up that's very interesting to me. you know, back in the 70s and 80s with rock and roll music and I imagine country music as well, it's it's, it's it's one of those things like you could release an album. like I remember Aerosmith, they released you know, a couple of albums and they did not have a number one hit. they're lucky if they even got a top 25 hit. and the, 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 the company or the they kept pushing them out, pushing them out, pushing them out. and it's like now, you're lucky if you don't get one, one hit off an album. You're lucky if you get re-signed, you know. And that, and that's what—that's well, yeah. what shocking to me and amazing to me at the same
1: time. Yeah, to me, um, you know, I would say Kenny Chesney was really the last artist that I saw that a record label truly hung in there with until he became a big artist. Right. And. Um, you know, he really struggled for a while. He lost one record deal, and then he got signed to RCA. And but somebody believed in him, and he's such a hard worker, that they just kept plugging ahead. And these mm-hmm. days, I don't think you would get that much of a chance to do that. If you, if they put out, these days, they hardly even cut a whole record on somebody. They'll cut, like, an EP, and they'll put a couple singles out, and if nothing happens, then you're gone. hmm and so it's it's a whole different world of you know you better make it really quick or the next person's coming along, and there's something to be lost in that because you know what the Kenny Chesney had never happened and all these great songs that he's done that changed people's lives or whatever uh, probably nobody would ever heard them so that's what I feel like is missing is nurturing these young kids and and helping them to develop where they'll have a long career. A lot of times now I see them forcing these kids to do what they they want them to do and the kids aren't really happy with it. And so after one or two records, they're kind of burned out and then they get dropped. And so it's kind of a, sometimes it's a mutual thing. Well, I don't want to be on this record label anymore. They're not helping me in the record label going, well, they're not selling, so we don't want them anymore. And it just becomes a really weird thing where nobody
0: really gets to develop the talent they truly are. Mm-hmm. Getting you home, the black dress song from Chris Young. Um, you wrote that with Chris Young. What, what What was that writing process going into that? Because obviously he was in, he was a um, he had released one album before, but th- th- he was kind of a, still a newer artist. The time this song came about.
1: Well, how that came about was um, I was working with a young artist at the time that I still work with. His name's Corey Batten, and Corey wrote She Wouldn't Be Gone for Blake Shelton, and just he's a great performer singer. But I was pitching him down at RCA Records one day to try to get him a record deal, and I knew it wasn't going good because the woman that I was pitching him to was listening to the worst hundred hurricanes in the last hundred years on the Weather Channel at the same time. And uh, (laughs) so when we got up to leave, uh, we were walking out the door and another A&R person came up and said to me, hey, I've got this young artist named Chris Young that I want you to write with, and he's had three singles out and they haven't done anything. If nothing happens, we're going to drop him. So I said, well, fine, I'll write with him. And so Corey was standing right there and I said, well, can Corey come? And they said, well, we don't care as long as you write with Chris. So, um, we got together with Chris and, um, you know, it's very hard anymore to just get in a room with an artist. But Um, so here we were, we, we knew we were with Chris and we also knew that if we didn't come up with something for Chris, he was going to lose his record deal. So, you know, we were under a lot of pressure and it was one of those days where nobody liked anybody else's ideas. And that's kind of the worst situation you can have in a, writing appointment, especially when you're writing with a, a new writer or a new artist that you never worked with before. So we were kind of stuck, and um, Corey is what I call a spewer, where you'll be working on a song, and he'll be in another room working on another song. And so one day, he had his hand in my room, and I heard him say, all I can think about to get a new home. And I said, Corey, what is that? And he said, I oh, don't know. I just made it up. So I had him. Yeah, that Corey had a few months ago. And so I found that and played it. And they both liked it. So that's how that song came about because somebody had his head stuck in the refrigerator. And um, we ended up writing the song. And. Um, did a little guitar vocal in my studio and we took it down to Sony and they called the next day and said, We love this song, we want to cut it. And um, it ended up being a number one song for him and started his career. So, uh, very interesting how that happened.
0: I want to get your take, um, and I don't want to say too much, but I've, I've heard word around Nashville about Chris Young, but how was he in the writing room with you? Like, what what was his personality dementia kind of like?
1: Well, he's just, he's a really great guy, you know, he's just down the other block of Tennessee, and, um, you know, he was only 23 at the time, so, yeah. um, and I think he was maybe a little intimidated of, of being with me or whatever, you know, so he really was just kind of going along with it for the First little bit, and then he kind of opened up. And to me, one of the best lines of the song is the line that he came up with: uh, "All you can think about is getting me home." Where he turned that around uh, to being about the other the other person in the song, and I thought that was genius. And uh, we've written some other really good songs. Um, he and I and Corey wrote one song. She's got this thing about her, which was on his Neon album. Right. Which is one of my favorite songs that I've ever written, and, um, you know, he's just, he's really grown into being a writer and an artist, and he's just had an incredible voice right from the beginning that makes him sound different from anybody else, so um, I wish we still wrote together, but uh, we
0: don't. Mm -hmm. Is is it, is that what, like, you said you don't write together, is it just because paths haven't crossed again since then?
1: Well, and I think uh, what happens these days in Nashville that didn't used to be this way um, is once you start getting hot, then the record label or your management want you to get with the people that are really hot. So, you know, I see people jumping around trying to get on the next new thing, and they kind of forget about the people that help them get going, and that's mm. what differentiates Garth from everybody else. He had this little circle of writers and he, keeps, he still keeps going back to those people now, you know, and they right. were the ones who really helped him create the songs. And I really don't see it that much anymore. It's like everybody's chasing the next new thing. Who's the hot, hot new writer we can get with? Who's the hot new producer we can have produce us? And, you know, Gar stayed with the same producer all along. He's used the same musicians. Um, he's used a lot of the same writers, and it seems like it's worked for him okay. But I kind of wish it was still that way.
0: Right. What's the one question that you get all the time in an interview that you just know they're going to ask and you know the answer to right before they even spit out the question?
1: Well, you know, the one everybody asks just about the GD math? is well, do you write the lyrics or do you write the music? <laughs> and, um, you know, in Nashville, it's usually everybody kind of writes both, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's pretty well rounded. And uh, so that's the question that I get asked more than anything. Do you like the lyrics? Do you like the music? And It's like, well, I aim to write all of it.
0: Well, what's what's one question that you never get that you just wished someone would ask you about?
1: Wow, that's a good one. You know, I, I think I have to say, after all the interviews I've ever done nobody's asked me something like that before so that's a good question that i don't
0: have an answer to. <laughs> <laughs> well is there a topic that you just love to talk about just in general as friends hanging out that you know you never get to talk about like because you're obviously talking about music and you talk about your life growing up but there has to be one thing you're just like i wish this person would bring up to me because if so we could talk forever about it
1: well for me it's um you know, when you come to Nashville and you're writing songs or whatever, it's really about sitting down with some other people and usually acoustic guitars or pianos. But my true love is around electric guitars, mm. and so um, you know, any chance I get a chance to talk about people about electric guitars and amplifiers, that's that's my true love, and I love playing. And I've got a rock band that plays where we do a lot of my guitar stuff and other things, and can turn up loud stomp on pedals and just have fun and same like when i went i just went in and recorded a new album last month and all i played on it was electric guitar i let everybody else do all the wonderful things that they do because that's really my first love electric guitar but then when you're sitting in nashville in a writing situation people usually want just an acoustic guitar and so what's happened is when i go out on the road and do these singer-songwriter things with other singer-songwriters, I started where i take an electric guitar and an amp along and a stop box or whatever to add just a different color to the rounds that we're doing. And it seems like it's, it's worked pretty good because it just adds something that people don't usually hear. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would talk about to anybody that wants to talk about it, is guitar, electric guitars and amplifiers and pedals and all that kind of stuff.
0: Well, man, I'm your guy. Uh, my first electric guitar was one of those, um, you know, the S101 guitars had the Eagle as the logo on it. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Right. It was a little cheap. Yeah. It was a little cheap $250 one. And I remember I wanted to play, I was so into music and I wanted to play electric guitar. So, but I really wanted to play, honestly, because my hero at the time when I was growing up was Blake Shelton. Because to me, you know, growing up, he was the next big thing that was blowing up at the time and he played, right. he played an acoustic and I wanted to play an acoustic guitar like Blake Shelton and I remember the guitar teacher was like look, it's so hard to learn on acoustic that you're probably going to give up so it's easier to learn on electric guitar and then move to an acoustic guitar
1: well you had a good teacher that was telling you that because that's accurate that's why so many people give up um, to get a, an acoustic guitar and most of those cheap electric guitars play way better than the cheap acoustic guitars and you can learn all the things that you you might have your fingers hurting too bad on a acoustic guitar, <laughs> so you had a
0: great teacher. Well, what also amazes me about guitar is is you have to have long enough fingers. Like, I remember my cousin wanted to do it, but his fingers were too short, and he didn't have the right hand length or something like that along with the hands that he wasn't able to play because he wouldn't be able to, I guess, make the chords right. Is, is that kind of accurate as well?
1: Well, yeah, you have to find the right neck that works for for you. You know, like Fender's necks are are skinnier than, uh, like uh, Fender necks are skinnier than just uh, about any other guitar. But then Gibson made a lot of them in the late uh, '60s and stuff. They had skinnier necks too trying to compete with Fender. So I think those kind of guitars would be better for somebody with smaller hands. But then again, one of my favorite guitar players and friends is Steve Warner. So he's got little tiny hands mm. and he's probably one of the best guitar players i've ever heard in my life mm. so uh, i think you just you really have to be willing to adapt and try to make it work for you and a lot of people get frustrated really quick that they don't have really long fingers or whatever but um you know there are all ways to get around that there's smaller guitars and smaller things of boards and stuff like that but you know, then you gotta check into all that and spend the time and spend the money, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people don't have enough either that these days. So, uh, you just go on to something else that
0: you like. What was it about electric guitars in general that just fascinated you? That's what I'm curious about. Well, why, think... why was it the electric? And you know, because a lot of a lot of youngsters and, and young boys, especially. They want the drums, they want something to make loud bang noises. You know, why was it the electric guitar for you?
1: Well, I think the main thing was like you were talking about Roger that earlier with that 12 stroke guitar that had a sound that nobody else had a sound like. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about voices like Randy Travis and people that Joe Diffie, you knew who they were when you heard Roger McGuinn playing that electric guitar, that bell string, you knew who he was. It wasn't anybody else who sounded like him. And so I think that is what kind of got me on to that to begin with. And then at the time, you know, you had these people like Jimmy Hammocks and Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page. And everybody was an electric guitar player that was very well known or that was setting new precedents on how music should be. So, for me, the minute I could get rid of my acoustic guitar, which, like you said, played terribly, hurt my fingers, my fingers bled, the minute I got an electric guitar, I was like, oh, this feels so much better. And um, I just kind of stayed with that. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just, you can make so many more sounds, you can make so much more noise, you can get stomp boxes that make it sound all kind of different crazy ways, and so that's kind of what influenced me was just the added ability of what an electric guitar brings to anything compared to an acoustic guitar.
0: My first guitar was an S101 left-handed black and white Stratocaster. And I remember, I still have it. It has no strings on it. I still have it in my closet with the um, with a belt that I made for a guitar strap. And I used a penny. For a guitar pick, <laughs> what was? There you go. What was a? Uh, what was that? Was I was seven, eight, maybe? Yeah, somewhere along there. So, right. what, was, what, what was your first guitar? Electric guitar.
1: The first electric guitar I had, believe it or not, I think it was called a Kent guitar, mm-hmm. and it was made in Japan, and it was really a piece of garbage too. Because now, if you're a beginner, there's so many more. Companies making guitars for beginners that play good, like Taylor, especially makes great, great guitars for beginners, and even like Fender's doing that with these flyer strats and mini strats and stuff. But uh, that first guitar I had, uh, I probably kept it about a year, but it it was one of those things where it played really bad and didn't play in tune and all that. So finally, I was like, "See, like I got a Stratocaster," and that. That's kind of changed the whole thing for me as far as how it sounded, how it played, and after that, there was just no turning back.
0: So, obviously when you're, when you're writing, you're playing guitar, you're obviously sitting around with an acoustic, but... It, right. Now, when you're thinking of an electric guitar, you're thinking you have to have an amplifier, now, do you ever just sit around right. without an amp and play electric guitar? Because obviously, if you ever do that, they kind of sound like crap, you know? It's just, they don't they don't right. have that hollow, you know, that hollow wood sound that acoustic does. Yeah,
1: you know, I don't sit around and just play an electric guitar, but now they've come up with so many cool little amps that run on batteries, and, uh, you know, you can carry one into a writing room and, and plug in and play or if you're at the house. You can, uh, pull out one of those and plug in and play without having to make a whole lot of noise and scare your dogs and all that kind of stuff. So that really helps. But yeah, I just love stop boxes and all that stuff. So if I'm bringing out an electric guitar, I'm going to have a, a stop box at least with me and, and an amplifier that I can get cranked up a little bit. And, um, but the ones that are so small these days that run on batteries they sound pretty good you know for mm-hmm. just being able to take them into a writing room and and bring a little different energy a little different sound to a, a
0: writing appointment than what two acoustic guitars would do mm-hmm. well man look as we wind down here i don't know how much time you have left but i'm going to be very responsible here for your time uh you have a new album coming out, uh, September twenty second. It's called Authentic. So tell me about this album. Is this the one you just mentioned that you recorded last month?
1: Yeah, exactly. Wow. And um, so it's
0: coming out this it was quick. Just
1: amazing. Yeah, it, <laughs> I have never had a, a a project fall into place so easy as mm. this has. It's just been really exciting to see how quick we got it done, how quick we got it mixed, how quick we got it mastered, how quick we got it coming out. And um, so it, it was just meant to be, but it was, what do you do in the middle of a pandemic? You can't go out and play. So All I right. just started writing songs and um, decided, why not go into the studio and record some? And I was fortunate because so many people can't go out on the road now. I could get John Party's guitar, uh, bass player and drummer to come play, which was fabulous. I would never gotten to work with them before. And uh, a couple other of my friends that are amazing guitar players and instrumentalists and stuff, uh, none of them could go out on the road, so they're all there to go into the studio and help me create this thing. And it was just the most exciting experience I've had and the most fun. I think we cut 11 songs in one day, which is kind of unheard of. But everybody was just so itching to play and so happy to be playing with other musicians again that it kind of just turned into a magical thing of, hey, let's just keep going. Are we having fun? Yeah, well, let's just make another one. Let's play another one. And uh, so by the end of the day, we had 11 songs. And then I had another song that I wrote about uh, this 1920 Martin guitar that I have that's the picture on the album cover. I wrote a song for her, and then Steve Warner and I wrote a song, and he did the whole demo on that that ended up being on the record. So before I knew it, I had 13 songs to put on a record. And um, I'm just so happy with it and so proud of it, and luck with it, all my friends were on it, and we got to do this in the middle of not being able to play.
0: You mentioned that your guitar is a female. Now, how, how, how do you tell the sex of a guitar? <laughs>
1: Well, <laughs> you know, there's some of them, some of them you just, they almost tell you they want to be named or something, and so this one, uh, I could send you a, a picture of the album cover, Okay. and you would see, she's, she's a tiny little guitar, <laughs> because that's how they made them in the 1920s, but somebody painted roses on her, mm. on, the, on her body, so I immediately called her Rose, and... Um, she had kind of been left for dead when I found her and a friend of mine who works at Brewing Guitars in Nashville spent three years putting her back together and uh, so the song on the album called Rose is all about this guitar's life from the time she was born in 1920 until being able to be on an album these days.
0: Wow. That's pretty cool to me. That's very fascinating. Now, you know, I was looking at some photos of you, and you do have a good, an acoustic guitar with a bunch of signatures on there. Now, right? Did you accommodate those signatures throughout your life, or or is that did you buy it like that? Because I know some people that would just buy like a Willie Nelson signed guitar.
1: Right. Now, what happened on that is um, that's not really even my guitar, but okay. when I did. Um, I did a uh, benefit with Garth at uh, the Bluebird a few years ago for a live hospice, and what the Bluebird does is every January, every show, the money from the show goes to a live hospice, mm. and so all the songwriters who do the show for a month uh, sign the guitar, so they wanted to do a story on this live hospice and the Garth show or whatever, so they asked me to hold that guitar in the picture. And, of course, I was honored because, you know, so many great people had signed that guitar. So that ended up being a photo that I ended up using on my last record because I just loved the way it looked, and I loved all these people that I love and signatures are on the guitar. So I wish I owned it, but uh, somebody else bought it in an auction and the money went to uh, a live hospice, so I was happy about that.
0: Have you ever seen something, kind of like the guitar, you know, that you... You ever been to one of those auctions where they're, like, auctioning off different artists' type of clothing or instrument play? You ever been to one of those?
1: Yeah, I have. I can't afford any of it, but, you know... <laughs> what was one of the most... It is kind what,
0: of cool. What was one of the most interesting pieces that you saw at the one of the auctions that you went to?
1: Well, um, the most interesting piece that I've ever found... Um, it wasn't at an option, but it was at this little store in St. Louis. And um, I went in this little store, and I didn't really see anything that really hit me. And when I was walking out, it was like this little voice that, Hey, I'm, 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 I'm back in the back here. Come see me. And so I went back in the music store, and up on the wall, in the dark, on top of a door, which shows you how high up it was, like 12 feet up, was this guitar hanging up. And so I walked up to that guitar, and I, I said to the salesman, well, what is that? And he said, oh, that's some old Martin that uh, the woman who had it's passed away, and her family's trying to sell it. Nobody's played it for, like, two years or whatever. And so I asked them to get it down. And when I, they got it down, speaking of female names, on the head spot by the Martin name was Olive Gale. Mm. And so... I said, well, it was this Olive Gale's guitar, and they said, yeah, and so my wife was with me, and she Googled obituaries in St. Louis, Olive Gale, and a picture came up of Olive playing a guitar in her obituary picture. Hmm. So I had to get that guitar, you know, it's like it, it had kind of spoken to me, so I got it home, and once again, it needed a whole lot of work. So my same guy, he worked on it for like four months, and uh, he finally got it done. And, you know, most women play guitar very easily. You know, Mm -hmm. they don't beat them up. Mm -hmm. And he said, she just beat the you-know-what out of this guitar. And uh, so I got it home, and uh, all these songs started coming out of this guitar, and the first one I wrote was called Old Guitar, which you think, oh, everybody's written that title. But then I started thinking, it's the same initials as Olive Gale, Old Guitar oh, wow. and Olive Gale, OG. And so all these songs started coming out of her. And so I wrote this whole album called New Songs from Old Guitars. And so when I would go around and do album release parties, I would take this picture of Olive Gale holding the guitar and tell the story behind this guitar so actually Dan was living again and the guitar was living again so mm-hmm. I just thought that was like the coolest thing and uh, it's a magical thing you can't explain uh, wanted to be brought back to life
0: one last question for you now do you trust people that now if people, if you see like a musician and they have a beat-up old guitar that they use all the time, do you trust that person right. more than the person that takes care of their guitar? Because which which one is better, having an old beat-up guitar that you know they've used and they've, you know, they used and, and they've trusted it like a kid and they've carried it everywhere or someone that brings out, you know, a spotless guitar that they said they've had for, you know, two, two, three, four, five years and it's not a nick on it?
1: Right. You know, um, these days, there's so many old guitars and vintage guitars. You never know, like Rose, if you see the picture on the cover, she's just been beat up for, you know, a hundred years. Mm. And um, it wasn't me that put the beat up on it, but uh, she's definitely been beat up. And so she's got a tone to her and a voice to her that maybe another guitar doesn't have because of that. And uh, so, but I wouldn't take her out on the road or anything like that because she's still pretty fragile but a lot of people they don't want a pristine guitar a lot of people like buying the old beaters even if they're like you know martins from the 70s to the 60s and the 70s they want something that's been beat up so if they beat it up even more mm-hmm. it doesn't matter but then other people you know they can have there's people that i know that have a guitar that's 30 or 40 years old that they've had from the time they were kids that they keep in pristine shape too because it means that much to them so it just varies you know it, it, there's like everyone has its own little story to it mm. and some people take really good care of them and some people don't really care but yeah. uh, it's just whatever you feel comfortable with you know I mean if you've got a, a pretty valuable guitar even if it's old and beat up you really have to take care of it because it's like a living, breathing thing. It's good and humidity changes it and temperature changes it. So it's always got to have a little something tweaking it up. And, um, you know, you have to be willing to do that or your is kind of going to fall apart over time. Mm-hmm. So that's basically what I tell people is just take care of your guitar and it'll take care of you and then make it sleep anywhere you wouldn't sleep.
0: Well, look... You can follow Kent Blazy on Instagram at Kent Blasey. Um, his new album, Authentic, is available everywhere September 22nd. So if you're listening to this, uh, once this comes out, it's available right now. Um, but Clint, I thank you for doing this for my brother.
1: Well, thank you so much. And it'll be on all the platforms because I don't get to look at my Instagram account all that much. But uh, you now it'll be on iTunes and Spotify. and. Amazon and all that too but thank you for your time and thank you for your great questions thanks for asking me a question nobody's ever asked me before yeah man.